0: They can get a cheerleader a lot cheaper than me.
1: All I'm looking for in that position of defendant is what it is I want to start my case with.
0: It isn't about your war with that lawyer, it's about your war with injustice and your war for justice. And I'd say don't be worried about how you can maximize your fee in any one given deal. Think about your reputation long term.
1: This is Wisdom on Trial, impacting your life and law practice. In today's interview, I uh, speak with Mark Morsh here in Orlando. Uh, Mark uh, was an active practicing lawyer uh, for a bunch of years and had a very successful practice in Orlando. And I met him when uh, we had a case where we represented different clients, um, but we were uh, interacting, fighting uh, with the same defendant, and I remember liking him at that time um, over Some period after that, Mark encountered some very serious difficulties with the bar and uh, it ultimately, unfortunately, resulted in him losing his license and he uh, went to federal prison and uh, went through a serious experience walking out, what does it look like to uh, shift from a successful law practice to um, where he ultimately journeyed. I think what you'll find is that uh, Mark is very authentic and he's very vulnerable in this conversation. And there are lessons in what he shares that we can all benefit from. Lessons about uh, being sure we don't get isolated uh, so we have checks and balances on the choices that we make. I think this interview for Mark was cathartic. I left there with good reminders uh, in things that I want to be doing in my practice. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. I'm glad to be here with Mark. Welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Well, we meant, I don't know if you remember, we actually had a case where we both had, uh, plaintiffs, your client had lost their life and mine had a serious injury and we were at a mediation ringing a bell. I, I believe so. I've got a couple cases in mind, but I think I do, uh, recall. Tell us a little bit about how you got into the practice of law.
0: Well, I do not come from a family of attorneys. So um, uh, I'm going to go back all the way to the decision to go to law school, actually, if I may. Uh, I don't really know what you're seeking there, but or how long you want to go back. But uh, I, don't, I don't come from a background where I had any connection with, relationship with, or familiarity with attorneys or the practice of law and um, but I knew I wanted to further my education to a doctoral level whether it was law, medicine, business, whatever it was going to be. And so I attended a small church college in Tennessee and uh, was getting my undergraduate degree and came to the point in my in my college experience where I had to decide do I want to become a surgeon or an attorney because I was really interested in medicine. I had a gift for understanding medicine. And I had an older brother and sister who were already physicians. They were already medical doctors. One was a missionary, a medical missionary in New Guinea, and one was an emergency room physician uh, practicing in Kansas. And being young and being still in college, I decided, you know what? I don't want to be the third doctor in the family, so I'm going to go to law school. And that's how it started. Mm-hmm. And I just chipped away at that and pursued that. I finished my my undergrad, was tired of education when I finished college. Did not want to go straight to law school because I knew I was kind of burned out. So I took three years off, came back to Orlando, taught special education here in Orlando and then went to law school. Why law school? Out of all the other potential professions, what was it about the law that drew you there? I don't have an answer for that. I really don't. It was just an interest. It was in my brain. Uh, in the middle of my college experience that I either wanted to be a surgeon or an attorney. And, and I had just decided that in my brain and that's how I went. Tell me, uh, you know, at the high point of your
1: practice, what it looked like. Like, take me to the prime of the prime, the best point. What did, what did your practice look like?
0: It, it, it probably had... 10 really good malpractice cases, and then I always kept a smattering of personal injury, mainly auto negligence cases as well, because it I had learned from a very good plaintiff's personal injury attorney here in Orlando, highly respected, well known, who I joined as an associate as a young attorney. And he, I remember him telling me early in my career, he said. You know these little soft tissue cases and these little auto cases they keep the lights on mm-hmm. and so I always held on to that and, and never let go of that even in my in the midst of my career but at it, it, it probably my best pace before I fell off the cliff, if you will um, uh, I would have uh, probably 10 major uh, malpractice cases involving death or grievous injury and then a smattering of auto negligence or other, serious injury cases that allowed me to really focus on, you know, 30 or 40 good cases versus 125 cases. What do
1: you think is the single most important quality of uh, being an effective trial lawyer?
0: I believe after almost 30 years of practice, From my perspective as a plaintiffs lawyer, would be transparency. What do you mean by that? I I mean it literally. As it comes to the practice, that is transparency with your opponent, transparency with your client, transparency with the court, transparency in mediation. And I'm going to tell us. I'm going to give you an example. Some of the guys that I really mediated with for so many years really appreciated it. Uh, I'm I'm going to think of one. I'm going to bring one name in. Jay Fracatus. I mediated with Jay. Many, many times in my career and enjoyed mediating with him and i I did something in my mediations that Jay felt was so unique and effective that he had me he took me up to his law school class at Florida and had me address his his uh, his class about this method I use in mediation. but it has to do it goes back to transparency. And I had a case once and it was a client of mine, it was a slip and fall at a Walmart, and though you know those, we can put those into their own basket of uniqueness, but she was a large person, and as plaintiff's lawyers, we know that if you're going to have a slip and fall, you really don't want to slip and fall with a large person, because that's going to just automatically hurt your case. And uh, in this case- A lot of
1: prejudices, a lot of oh, preconceived opinions. That are untrue most of
0: the time, and- but I had a, a heavy set client, and she slipped and fell at a Walmart and suffered a, a grievous injury, a pretty serious injury for a, a slip and fall case. And so when I went in to mediate, Walmart would, uh, because I'm sure they got hit with slip and falls all the time. Yes. And, and so they would make you prove your case, they would make you show your case and prove to them that they had a case. It may not go to trial, but if you're going to get a six figure settlement on a slip and fall from Walmart back when I was doing it, you better show your case. I don't think that's
1: changed a whole lot.
0: Yes. (laughs) So in this case, I had gotten permission on how I would mediate this case and give my opening statement with my client before I gave my opening statement. And I decided I was going to go in at mediation, and I was going to fall on my sword, admit what was bad with my case, and completely turn it around so that I would use it as a strength. So I went into that mediation and my opening statement, and I talked about the most negative things my case had, including the fact that I had a very large client. And I completely stole their case. I stole their thunder. I stripped their gears. And we got a good six-figure result. So when I talk about transparency, Dave, uh, I am talking about it in the practice itself. But I'm also talking about transparency with your opponent. And I'm talking about transparency with your client. And that probably to me is the singular most important Reality uh, that I take out of my thirty years of practice, which also because I did not utilize it, led to my downfall as well. So it's a, it was a, but it's still the most important thing. Well,
1: I'll be transparent with you, um, as you know. Um, while I, I'm interested to hear about uh, your thoughts on general law stuff, it, really the the driver is, I mean, when I met you. I could be wrong, but my, my memory is you've got this nice office. I think you are driving a Porsche. Uh, wife, children from the outside looking in, good looking, healthy, uh, uh, what appeared to be a, a thriving practice. And, uh, and then one day in the journey, I read an article in the paper, and
0: uh, I would love, if you're, if you're cool with it, to kind of unpack that. Please do. Uh, okay. Please do. I'm, I'm, I am uh, going to be uh, as transparent as I can be. I'm okay. going to abide by that word. So the,
1: the piece that I want to start with is uh, knowing where it all kind of ended up. What led you down the path? Where you went to the left rather than the right. In other words, you would say uh, I made some choices here that began the
0: process that made me vulnerable for what ultimately happened. Yes, um, I, I can probably point to one major factor and then lesser factors, but I'm going to I'm going to focus on the major factor because it, and I'm talking in my case professionally speaking, where it ended my career and dramatically and drastically changed my life forever. I didn't get up one day, walk out the door, and fall off the cliff. Uh, There was a period of time and distance between choices and decisions and that actual fall. The fall was acute, it was abrupt, and it was right off the cliff. And that all happened in one fell swoop, if you will. But I would say that for me, I always had, for most of my career, a partner of sorts. Now, I had, law, I had law partners when it was uh, Parish Bailey, and Morse back in the day. Uh, when I went on my own, I did not have law partners, but I certainly had associates that I hired, and I had a business partner who was a non-lawyer who was actually uh, a very vital part of the, the balance of the business practice. And, and he handled most of the business side of the practice because I loved the law. I loved it purely. And I didn't want to be burdened with the business side of the practice. Salaries and, you know, I'd interview staff and all of that. But 401K plan. I didn't want to worry about that. Insurance. Budgets and health, budgets insurance,
1: and health, insurance, and health insurance, bank accounts. Dental insurance. And people getting sick and all of that.
0: No. And I had a business partner who was a non-lawyer who was 20, 21, 22 years older than I was who he was paid well and compensated well. He was also a rainmaker. As a non-lawyer, he had great business contacts, and he brought a lot of good business into our firm. So we were actually, maybe not legally, but practically business partners. And, and, but he, he was a good anchor. And he took care of the business side. And it freed me up to pursue my first love, which was the law. I could focus on the law. I could focus on my case. I could focus on my trial. I could focus on my client. And he did all the rest, and it was perfect. It was a perfect balance. I made the mistake. I had, I, had going th- I had gone through a divorce, and I had remarried. And I had remarried a quite a bit younger lady. That tends to happen, I hear. It does. But it's all part of the picture. And there's no blame here laid at the, at the feet of anyone. I want to stop the press right now and make something very clear to you and to anyone listening. I blame only one person for my failure, and that's myself, no one else. But I had remarried, although my second wife was not highly educated from the standpoint of formal education. She was a a bright young woman, and I made her my office manager, and and she did a great job managing my office. Although there are dynamics that occur when you have a a long-standing relationship with a business partner, and then you bring in a young second wife who's your business manager, there's going to be conflict, inevitably. It just feels like
1: uh, an inevitable problem in I think, hindsight. I, I think it's Groundhog's
0: Day yes. was the movie. So it, that happened. It led to my business partner leaving the practice. And that was the singular most fatal step I ever made. From a macro perspective, stepping
1: up to 20,000-foot elevation, why was that such a big deal?
0: because I lost a check and balance in my practice from a business standpoint. My law career did not fail because I was a lousy lawyer. My law career failed because of uh, financial management and mismanagement. And had I not gotten rid of my business partner, I would still be practicing today. That singular decision then led to further degradation and, 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 and poor decision-making on my part that then led to my disbarment.
1: When we had spoken, uh, I don't remember when you had come out of prison. I don't know how long after it had been. Do you know?
0: It was within six months of me or less of me coming out of the federal prison up in Kentucky that you contacted me, and we had lunch. Let me. Uh, I asked one of
1: our younger lawyers what he would want to ask you, and one of the things he said is, he, he wondered, did you get to go to like one of these nice like lawyer
0: glamour prisons or did you go to the real deal? Uh, I was not in a penitentiary. So the, answer, the, the short answer is, no, I, I, I did not go to the real deal. I did not go to a penitentiary. But it's not the country club it's painted out to be because uh, each federal prison camp, and their camps is what they are, they're for white-collar criminals primarily, and one camp is not equal to the other. So there are camps that historically were more and may still be camps that are historically, uh, we call them club fed, for lack of a better term. And they are- You didn't get to go to club fed? I didn't go to club fed. But, I, but a trial I was lawyer. not- They're not letting
1: trial lawyers go to club fed.
0: Well, there are uh, camps for mainly white collar offenders in our federal system that, that probably aren't real restrictive, but they're still prison. And, and there's still a, it's still a dramatic change, especially if you take an attorney who is used to a high six-figure, seven-figure income living a very comfortable life to have to go sleep on a mattress that's 30 inches wide, six inches thick, that's on a steel plate, welded, bolted down uh, bunk bed with a steel plate, and that's what I slept on for six months. Was the worst moment. Uh, the first two hours I was there. Uh, again, you got to recognize what I came from. I had a million dollar home in Oviedo, a, a lovely second wife and lovely children, and, and that's a whole different story that if we may today talk about or not. And, and my experience with adoption and how wonderful that was in my life. But, but I went from living a very blessed, comfortable life to my sports car had been taken back by the bank because I lost everything. I lost literally everything, including my marriage. And I drove a my dad's used, very old, high mileage Toyota Corolla to report to prison. And so I drove in this old Toyota Corolla, had my friend drive me up and drop me off, and I had to go in and I, I had brought with me Some things that I wanted to keep, you know, my wedding ring, even though I was separated and facing divorce, my wedding ring meant something to me. I brought my Bible, I brought my eyeglasses, um, a picture of my family and some other personal items, all of which had to go back to the car. Uh, I wasn't allowed to bring any of that in. The only thing I was allowed to bring in was my medication I was taking and my eyeglasses, my reading glasses, and that was it. And I walked into my street clothes. And uh, they took me back through a series of steel barriers and literally clanging doors and guards and bars in a max security federal prison to a room in the, in the heart and soul of the complex. Actually there were female uh, guards working out in the area where I was but it was a male guard who took me into a, like a closed room and picked out my, my prison garb off the shelf and said, "Strip." And he had me strip right in front of him, which was appalling to me. And then he said, squat. And, and I said, squat? And he goes, squat. And I squatted and he said, cough. And I had no idea what was going on and I coughed. And you can imagine why they had you do that. It was a security measure to make sure you didn't have anything in your rectum. I didn't know that. I'd never been to prison before. And then he handed me, I'm, st- I'm stark naked and it's freezing cold and there's women right around the corner and I'm I'm beyond shell-shocked. I can't even begin to tell you how difficult this was. And he handed me a pair of pants which were eight inches too long. I had to roll them up, kind of Army-type pants. He handed me a shirt which was also maybe a faded, like, green Army shirt that was way too big for me, a belt uh, that was too long, white socks that were stained. I mean, they had stains on them. They were clean, but they were, you know, stained and a pair of faded purple-like canvas shoes. And so I got dressed, and I mean, my heart fell. I was in these horrible clothes in a federal penitentiary in Pine Knot, Kentucky, 800 miles away from the only people I knew that loved me, and I was lost, completely lost. Do you remember... uh and, and we're gonna
1: talk about the cathartic moments and the highs, but just staying here just for a second. In the lowest points, do you remember what was going through your head?
0: Probably one question, just a question. Because I knew I deserved to be where I was at. I was never in denial about my wrongdoing or my punishment. In fact, I was grateful that I only had six months because the federal attorney prosecutor's office wanted me to serve 27 months 28 months and the judge gave me six and that's a whole story worth telling if if I get a chance or you want to know about it but I had as I stood there holding my clear plastic bag with my tiny bar soap and my tiny pillow and my tiny mattress I, I just had a question go through my mind and that was how am I going to do this and and how did you How did you make it through it? One step at a time, one day at a time, one prayer at a time, one tear at a time, one new friend at a time, because what happened, what those men did, you would not imagine. What friendship meant, what um, a handshake, a kind word meant, you have no idea. And coming from men who were convicted felons, men who did mainly financial misdeeds, but bad. One guy I was down with uh, was from Birmingham, Alabama, and they had ripped off investors to the tune of $500 billion, a half a trillion dollars. So uh, men who certainly committed crimes, who deserved their punishment, but, but who showed <clears throat> a humanity that's indescribable. I could write a book or many. You don't know till you're there. And these men, fellow felons, or pr- most of them are still there, by the way. Very few men got six months. And we'll talk about my nickname in a moment. But these were men that showed compassion and love, and a, and a hand, and a, and a just a, a hug and i I could go on and on i mean you don't know that's there but these are people too
1: so what 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 habits routines practices helped you shift from you know the hard times to more of a hopeful mindset yes
0: just so happened as fate would have it within one week of my arrival there was an attorney a disbarred attorney who was in prison who was departing and he was the camp librarian he was one of these seven other men on my aisle. and we uh, immediately, uh, almost immediately bonded. He reached out to me because I was lost, during in the headlight, just absolutely flabbergastedly, breathlessly lost. And we all come in the same way most of us do. and we all learn that. And so he reached out to me and 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 almost immediately connected to me. and but he was the camp librarian, and he tapped me as his predecessor. It was, kind of an informal thing, and so he took me to the camp commandant, introduced me, and said, I want Mark to replace me. And so the commandant, along with this uh, Dispart attorney, camp librarian, we sat down, we talked, and he tapped me, and the commandant agreed and said, okay. So he groomed me. He had a week to groom me, basically, five days to groom me. And it was a whirlwind romance, uh, but it was tremendous, and so I became the camp librarian and it was certainly one of the greatest jobs in the camp. It didn't pay more. It was still a buck twenty an hour or $0.80 cents an hour or whatever we made. But I love books. I'm an intellectual, uh, or at least an intellectual wannabe. And I love to teach. And I love to help. And I always have. And so I had uh, a classroom of 150 inmates who needed help. Some of the men needed help writing letters to their loved ones. Some of the men needed help drafting pleadings for their federal cases. Some of the men needed help working the computer. Some of the men needed help finding books to read or wanted to know about books. And I was blessed because I got to do that. I got to help write letters to loved ones. I got to help them draft pleadings. I got to help them learn to use the computer so they could email their
1: family. Yeah, so what I'm hearing is that finding, A, something that you like to do, you know, even if it didn't look the same as as it had before, and then being able to use that in a purposeful manner was impactful in shifting your mindset. Not only was it impactful, but it was... the fundamental essence of my being. Any routines that you developed uh, or practices that you developed when you were in prison that uh, you still
0: follow that were new and fresh? Yes, that saved my life and I still follow. So the food was horrible in prison. It, in our camp, it was. It was just horrible. It was horrible in every way. It was loaded with fat and sodium and unfit for human consumption. Not all of it was, but yeah. it was horrible food. So it made fasting uh, easier to do, but I, I began fasting in prison, and I did it, initially I did it not for weight loss, but I did it because I wanted to be able to control my destiny. You, you give up control of just about everything in prison. By the time I walked through those doors that cold fall night in October of twelve, I had lost control of 99% of my life maybe 1% left. And so having some semblance of control was meaningful. And fasting was one way. How, how did you diet. fast back then? What would you do? I would simply uh, literally fast. So I would uh, drink black coffee with no cream or sugar and water. And that would I would do that for a period of days and literally have no calories. How long is the longest you, you went? A week. And I never felt better. I lost weight. I was clear-minded. I was full of energy. It was the most incredible physiologic, psychological, emotional, spiritual journey I'd ever
1: been on fasting. It's, a, it's, a very, it's becoming, healthwise. some form of fasting is becoming, uh, it's been popular spiritually for years, yes. but it's becoming, health-wise even, uh, a tool. Any uh, hysterical moments when you were in prison? Any knee-slapping stories?
0: Yes. Uh, I don't know about me. I don't know how I would characterize them, but I'll tell you one. So this was very hard for me. I was a successful trial lawyer and was used to working with people and collaborating and making the arguments and working with co-counsel or opposing counsel. But one thing I always did as a trial lawyer is I would come up to you if if you were working with me on a case or on the other side and I would always greet you and shake your hand. It's just what I was. it was real for me. It wasn't Contri- contri- I was never contrived about it, it was just how I was. I was a people person. I love human contact, and that includes shaking a hand or giving a hug. You and I hugged today. Mm-hmm. It's not contrived, it's real. And, and human contact's important, and it builds relationships. So I was used to shaking hands. And I went into prison, and I'll never forget it. I had an interview with the camp commandant a few days after I was there. It's kind of a, uh, an interview they do uh, coming in, and then they interview you going out. And it's a personal one-on-one with the camp commander, and I'll never forget uh, he interviewed me as I was coming in. It was my entrance interview, and we had about probably an hour, just him and I in his office. And it was it was uh, you, you bear your soul because you're talking about fundamental stuff, and 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 you talk about what happened and what went wrong, and you talk about your sentence, and you talk about what to expect and learn here in the this prison camp for six months, and. At the end of the interview, I stood up and uh, really had connected to him, and it was real, and I went to shake his hand, and he wouldn't shake my hand, and it was devastating. What he said to me was devastating, and he goes, I can't shake your hand. You're a felon, and I won't shake your hand until the day you leave. That was devastating. You gotta shake hands every day. It means probably nothing to you. But if you lose that, you lose humanity.
1: Yeah, it's like a loss of dignity in that moment.
0: It's devastated me. And so I looked forward six months later to that warm handshake, and I had it. I looked forward every day of my six months to shaking the commander's hand as a man when I left. Hmm. Sorry, no, nothing to be sorry
1: about. Nothing. Uh, for, do you remember the first meal you had when you got out?
0: Yes, I do. Um, the day I left prison, uh, it was uh, about March twelfth. About so it was March twelfth of two thousand thirteen, and I got on a Greyhound bus with a Greyhound one way ticket to Orlando, Florida. Literally, it's like a. It's almost like I'm making this up, and I'm not and I was given this this debit card from the bureau of prisons and I think I had 80 or 90 dollars on my account I couldn't you know I had to make my bus I had to stay on my bus if I missed my bus and my connection I could be put back in prison so I wasn't going to do that we stopped at a bus stop in Atlanta Georgia and I was I was able to get off in my street clothes with my debit card and go be normal and go into this truck to this uh, bus stop, this massive bus stop that had several different, like, Wendy's or McDonald's or Kentucky Fried Chicken. And um, I went to McDonald's uh, because the food I'd eaten in prison was horrible. And I'd really not had any good food, and not real food, not real McDonald's for sure. And I got a, a Big Mac and a large fries and a chocolate shake with my debit card. It was my own money. I could spend the way I wanted. You can't do that in prison. And you can't get McDonald's in prison, at least not at my camp. And I felt so human. I felt so free. It was being human again. So that was my first meal. That's good. And it was incredible. How that chocolate shake tastes, buddy! I couldn't drink it fast enough. (laughs) Thank you, sir. I'll have
1: another one of those chocolate shakes. Tell me this: what has been in the kind of healing process most helpful for you? And, And and here's what I'm learning over time: we all have pain. They're all different. I'm not I'm not minimizing or maximizing anything. But sometimes if we hear how someone else walks through pain, it can be helpful um, to others. What are the things that you're doing that are most helpful in your healing?
0: There's probably several things I can look at, but for me, and and you're going to remember this when we spoke some months ago, one of the things that probably led to my downfall was my unwillingness to own things. And I'm not talking about sports cars, I had nice ones, or houses, or bank accounts. I'm talking about owning stuff deep inside you that you should own as a man or a woman. And so for me, owning what I did has been fundamental to my salvation. And I'm not talking spiritual salvation, I'm talking about salvation in life recovery, grace, forgiveness. And those are religious terms, but I'm not talking about them in a religious sense right now. I'm talking yes. about literal salvation, being saved from utter destruction because what I've been through has destroyed many men. They didn't make it. But it owning my past and my failure has literally been my saving Grace, my salvation. And I own it every day. It's a daily walk that I'll never stop experiencing. My salvation is getting up every morning and owning my failure. Not to stay there. Yes. But to grow. Yes. And grow I do. And yes. grow I have.
1: Yes. And grow you will continue and grow to grow, I will continue <laughs> yes. to. Yes. And this is part of my growth. Talking to you is part Look of my good. growth. Well, let's get after, um, you know, my heart is, I I often say, I know I'm going to fall down. I I just prefer for it not to be violent. I know I'm going to make mistakes. I just prefer for them not to be colossal. And I learn uh, uh, oftentimes best from other people's struggles. And I see that and I say, okay, I want to avoid that. Uh, If you were to identify some themes, that kind of led down the path that, that you did. Less focused on the facts of what happened, but more about the theme. I know one of them is isolation and the lack of checks and balances. Tell me a little bit more about
0: that. Yes. So um, uh, for the bulk of my career, I had partners. I had people in my life that I respected enough that I listened to them. That's so important because we can have people in our lives, but if we don't listen to them, it's meaningless or it's noise at best. So for me, I was blessed enough, lucky enough to have, in this case, men uh, who I could name and it, it doesn't matter, but I had men in my life for most of my career who I respected enough that I would listen to, and that gave me The upbringing as a young lawyer and then later on as I matured and the guidance and the structure To be successful and to make good decisions. I Lost that anchor when I got rid of my business partner and Within It was gradual but within three years of losing that anchor I fell I I drowned so it took three years, because nothing happens like that overnight. It's a degradation. It's bits and pieces. But it's, it was the loss of that structure and not having someone I respected that I listened to in my life that led to my ultimate downfall. So so,
1: not having the checks and balances on our own decisions, so for someone out there that um, feels alone or isolated, uh, whether it be the nature of their practice, or um, they're technically not alone, but they're afraid to be
0: transparent. Fear. What was, advice would you give them? Yes, so I think mine uh, there there were uh, listen. There were plenty of men I could have picked up the phone at any point after, I, after, I, after my business partner left. And I began the slow decline. And this is a terrible analogy. You're going to shake your head and just go, Mark. But it is the frog in the pot of water on the stove. Because the water's cold and the frog jumps in, he's happy, and it slowly warms. And he adjusts and it warms a little more and he slowly adjusts until his skin is being boiled off and it's too late. And that's exactly what happened to me. It was a gradual boil. It wasn't something I recognized. So how do people avoid that? So, two things for me that I'm going to throw out there that I think will help people in a similar situation. Number one was, and, and it was arrogance on my part. It was arrogance on my part. And it was fear, because the, the flip side of arrogance is fear. They're very closely connected. And because I was afraid, and when I became arrogant, I was smart enough, successful enough, had enough money, had enough experience. I didn't need a business partner. And that began the decline. And so I would say to anyone listening, and especially if you're out there and you're starting out your career, You don't have to have a business partner in your practice. You don't have to have a law partner in your practice. What you do have to have is someone that you respect enough that you will listen to. Uh, We call it an accountability partner. I cannot stress enough how important having someone in your life that you respect enough to listen to in your life. I don't care who they are. They don't even have to be in the legal profession. If if you're a young lawyer out there starting out, they could be anyone in any profession. But don't let arrogance blind you to your need for that, because the need is there. That
1: it's good because I remember uh, you know shortly after you got out, one of the other things that stuck with me is you told me um, the danger of rationalization how when we're alone and we're isolated, we can, we can just keep rational. I need to do it for this person, and these people are counting on me, and I'm doing it for the family, and I'm doing it for the firm, and I'm doing it for yes. all
0: those. T- tell me a little bit about yes. that. Yes. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add one word to that. It's rationalization because I knew better. I was brought up better. I was better. I am better, but I wasn't. And I wasn't because I rationalized. But along with rationalization, I'm going to add one more word, and that's echo, or echo chamber. That's two words, sorry, echo chamber. But what happens is when you're isolated, I'm in this empty chamber on my own, isolated, arrogant, not willing to listen, not seeking to listen, not trying to listen. Then I begin to rationalize, and then those rationalizations become exponentially more powerful because it's a hollow echo chamber that bounces around with nothing else coming in. You start doing a little bit at a time, and it's a chip at a time and a chip at a time and a a little bit of fudging here and a little bit of fudging there, and before you know it, it's too late. And the counter to the rationalization and the
1: echo chamber, the way to combat that, it seems like, you know, as you look back at it, would be be sure you have someone in your life that is actively in your life, that's participating and giving you candid feedback so that you have checks and balances.
0: Yes to that. Yes, strongly to that. And it's not a sign of, you don't have to, you know, male ego likes to get in the way. Well, you know, isn't that a sign of weakness that you got to have somebody in your life? Because when I was younger, there was a part of me that, Fought against the idea of accountability because I was smarter than that. I was better than that. My ego, again, it goes back to fear and being afraid, but then you want to put on that false bravado. So I don't really need anybody. I'm strong enough. I can do this. I mean, I remember telling myself, Mark, you were brought up, but you know better than this. you can do this on your own. You don't need anybody. You're at the point in your career, you're a smart cookie, you've got plenty of money in the bank, and you're good. I was good at what I did. I was good at what I did. And it was an honest-to-goodness good at what I did. But that bred contempt to humble myself, to listen to someone I respected. Yeah, I told someone today that
1: it seems like the real strength we have is when we know I need help. Like that's actually stronger than the opposite. My
0: greatest strength is my greatest weakness. My greatest strength is my greatest weakness. And my greatest life lessons are learned in the uttermost failures. I do my growing in the rain, not the sunshine. Let, let me uh, – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move to uh,
1: – I've been asking these same two questions to every person I've had the privilege to interview. You're not limited by your answer, okay? You can choose however you want to answer this in the world. If you were to give some advice to a group of lawyers that were 25 to 35 years old, They're they're starting off on their practice or they're starting to gain some traction, and you could speak to them and give them any advice. What would you tell
0: them? Um, Real simple whatever you do, however you choose, for whatever reason, don't go it alone.
1: It's good advice. Let's take a second group 45. To 55 they're a little more established in their practice They're they're not
0: just in the early stages what would you tell them yes so I discovered this around that age range and it's it's the gift I'm going to give to that group of people, that that segment of the population and that would be this one word and that's service so a lot of us are caught up now mid-career We've got that head of steam, Uh, our tanks are full, we're doing well, and now we can really kind of enjoy the next 20 or 30 years because we've done all the work. The the hard work is done. So now we're at that point in our career and uh, that point in our age and our life where we're kind of getting bored. We're not being challenged. So the secret is service. It's giving. It's serving others. If you'll do something to serve others, it will give you back some of the joy, the psychic income, the energy, maybe that you've kind of lost or taken for granted. where Where are you finding uh, some opportunities to do that now? So now I'm financially, I've started over. I've started over about five years ago, but and when you start at zero, it's a long way. And so, I have—again, I'm blessed. And it's because of the people in my life and family and people I know and my uh, connections and friendships. But, and I've, I've, I've had the privilege over the last five years to travel to several different countries. I'll be going to Cuba next month on a, not, with an NGO on a nonprofit. And uh, I've gotten to be hands-on giving back in literal ways and figurative ways. And it's been so rewarding. And the other thing I've gotten to do now in the post phase of my life where I'm 61 and I'll never practice law again. And, I, and I, that hurts to say, but I'll never practice law again. I'll never be an attorney in the courtroom again. But I've still got these skills and abilities. So I've been given the next best opportunity. And I'm actually getting paid income to work with a an attorney here in town who wants to harvest my experience and my knowledge and my skill, and he wants to try to become a successful trial lawyer and a good trial lawyer. I've always loved to teach, David. I've always enjoyed uh, being given the opportunity to help others learn or become, and, and that includes teaching, all the way back to when I first got out of college and taught special ed before law school. And it's so rewarding. Well, I,
1: I hope you uh, also teach him the he needs uh, a mentor to help keep him accountable, and I'm sure I'm sure you're doing that. And the intangibles, the yes. important intangibles. Yes, you betcha. You betcha. Um, Well, uh, I could honestly ask you. I, I've covered one fifth of what I planned on asking you, but I know there's a limit in time. Um, is there anything else that's on your heart that while we have the opportunity, you just want to get out there? I don't want to, uh, if, if you had one message that you wanted to speak out, anything you want to say out?
0: Uh, yes. And it's, it's not some uh, nugget of wisdom. It's pra- very practical, but it's this. Um, You know, I am a public speaker. I mean, I was a trial lawyer, so I'm used to speaking to people. And I am willing to share my story anywhere, anytime, in any form or fashion, if it can change the path of one person in life. If if, if I spent the next 30 years sharing my story, high and low, up and down, black and white, right and left, if it changes, if it saves one life. From making that wrong decision. It's been more
1: than worth it. So if, if someone wants to get a hold of you, your email is
0: M M O R S C H, that's my name, M Morsch, the number zero at gmail.com. Or they can call me or text me 407 953 0256. We'll see whether you regret giving your uh, cell phone out over the massive uh, internet, but we'll see. We'll- I sincerely promise you I will not, only yes. because if I do, I'll do it secretly, and I won't tell anybody. but uh, <laughs> no, I part of my I do have the gift of communication and and, and, and I feel a burden. I feel a, 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 a happiness, a desire, a will to be part of the restoration process. And, and again, it's the message. And if one life can be changed, if one decision can be avoided, for 30 years of toil, 40 years, whatever God gives me, it's worth it. It's worth every bit of it.
1: Well, uh, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your transparency, your your uh, genuineness today. And, and as you actually have always been towards me, um, a friend of mine who served uh, 10 and a half years, uh, not in the uh, federal system, but the state system and uh, general population. I, he, he, I've heard him say this to... Uh, folks who are inmates, he says, when I see you, I don't see the blues that you're wearing. I see future fathers and teachers and preachers and businessmen, and he just sees hope. And I just want to tell you when I see you, um, I don't see your past. I see your future and I see, uh, impact and future and hope. So I really, uh, genuinely appreciate you sharing and I wish you the very, very best. Well, I, uh, I hope you enjoyed that. That was uh, not the lightest interview that I have done, and uh, I really, really appreciate just how brave Mark was in sharing the challenges that he went through. And for me, I like the humanity of his encounter in, in prison and the unexpected areas where he experienced hope And I think the bigger narrative with Mark, we need to be careful that we have checks and balances in uh, what we're thinking and what we're doing. And the more we isolate ourselves away from other uh, lawyers or people that understand our business and our lives and our values, um, the more dangerous it is. And so um, I'm thankful to have people in my life that speak truth. Um, both within my firm and outside of my firm. And so I just want to encourage everyone to be sure there are people in your lives that uh, help disrupt the echo chamber that can be going on in our brains. Uh, Again, I appreciate you listening. Next uh, podcast, we're going to be playing the interview I did with uh, Judge Kevin Weiss, who is a, a sitting circuit court judge in Orange County. And uh, I really enjoyed it. He was great. I, I think he offers a lot of good practical tips for all lawyers. Thanks again for listening.